The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. We look around at a world filled with an unusual degree of trouble and tribulation right now. One way that we should react is with thoughtful listening. Not just to experts who give us technical advice and guidance, though that's good and wise, and not just to friends or other people around us as they tell us their stories. That's good too, though. But I mean thoughtful listening to God a giving of attention to him that asks him, looking around, what's going on here? What are you trying to do here with this, through this? What should I, what should we do with this? That's what we considered last week in the first half of the book of the prophet Joel, When extraordinary trouble comes upon a people or on a place, Joel teaches us, the people of God, to pause and realize something. Something, in fact, that that really everybody, all all the world can can pause and think about and realize, but but in particular, that's a message for us. It's particularly something for us to consider, that a day like this, like this in Joel or like this one that we're experiencing, is a pointer towards and a warning about another coming great day, the day of the Lord, when similar but far greater upheaval will come upon all of the earth as God calls all to account and judges everything and everyone everywhere. The great day of the Lord is coming. And so, all of what we might perhaps call minor days of the Lord, like in Joel or like now, all of those days that are lesser but but do still bring great dramatic upheaval and trouble are moments in which God is kind kind of poking us and shaking us a little bit, trying to awaken us, everybody, but but us in particular, the church. to to a crying out to him for help in our need and to a repenting, a true turning back to him in heart, a renewed trusting of him in Christ. All the world needs to hear that, and that is particularly the message to us, the church. And that's where we left it last week. That was review from last week. But now, today, we kind of like turn the page, and in my Bible, literally turn the page, And there's something else. Something further that is sweet and and really kind of surprising. You read the first part and it goes this way, and then there's something surprising as it goes this way in in a dramatic way. A great privilege that God has given to us, his people, to, to you, Christian. The day of upheaval and trouble, the day of the Lord, it is full of hardship and it calls us to repent, but that day also includes, as as we turn to him, it includes a turning from God, on, on God's part, a turning to us of his smiling face and a giving to us of great restoration. 
He responds to us as we turn to him and pours out on us great good and ultimately does something more. As we'll see in the passage today, there's a a pointer in this passage towards the ultimately something more. He moves towards us to pour out on us great good now, to turn our hearts to him, and then something more. It gives us a, a different touch of him and a different power from him. Something that equips us and moves us out towards the world. That's what we're going to look at today. Joel 2, chapter 2. The outpouring of the Spirit and fortunes restored when that happens. So, that's what we're looking at. I'm going to read, it's again a lengthy passage. I'm going to read it in two parts. Read the first half first, drawing out one observation from that, and then the second half second with the second observation. So, follow along as I read Joel from chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years the swarming locust has eaten the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. Pause there. Here's the first observation then. God responds to our prayer and repentance with sweet, joyful restoration. God responds to our prayer and repentance with sweet and joyful restoration. Obviously, this passage has a night and day different feel to it than what we saw previously. If you were to read these back to back, it is terrible and then it turns and it's sweet. We cried out and we repented and we asked, verse 17, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach among all the nations. They asked, you know, where's your God? And God heard that 
verse 18, and he answered, verse 19. And much of what follows here is his answer. He's going to destroy the locusts, verse 20. They did great things, end of verse 20, and now verse 21, the Lord has done great things. He's going to get rid of them, and then verse 25, he will restore the years the locusts destroyed. This all reads very quickly, but if you, if you notice there, this actually was years of trouble. They destroyed years, but now all that gets restored as numerous statements repeatedly emphasize. He says he's going to give the grain and the wine and the oil, the basic staples of life, and you will be satisfied. He says the pastures will be green again, and the trees and the vines will bear fruit. The vats will overflow, and the threshing floor will be full. Statement after statement after statement here. And you'll eat in plenty and be satisfied. All of that coming after, verse 23, the Lord gives rain, pours down abundant rain, the early and the latter rain. The reversal of fortunes here is total. The material and tangible blessings of this passage are, are all clear, obvious. He drives off the locusts, pours down rain, and in time the land flourishes and the people have tremendous relief. We can all appreciate that. We, we can certainly kind of see down the road, we can imagine what it would be like to just have all of this just kind of like wiped away and this abundant good in every possible way once again for us. Satisfaction and gladness and joy would color our lives. And that, in fact, is how the people are described here. Right in the middle of this passage, 21, 2, and 3, the land and then the beasts and then the people, fear not, be glad and rejoice. Fear not, be glad and rejoice. This is a great hope. All of this. He's trying to say, look at all of this. Fear not. It's okay. It's a great hope that, that kind of drives, or if you look at the other way, invites, lures, tempts us, moves us to this repentance and praying that we were talking about last week. It's not just like in last week's passage, perhaps God will. No, he will restore us. He will restore you. He will hear when his people cry out to him in dependent prayer and repentance. He will sweetly give abundant blessing, joy, and gladness. He will put things back the way they should be. Not, carefully here, not back the way things were when it all started. He'll restore to the way things should be which is what we really want. He will restore us, his people, in our hearts. He will restore us in relationship to him. 
He'll restore us in, in the proper enjoyment of all the many things of earth which he gives us. He's going to put all that back together rightly so that we rejoice not just that we have the stuff, but so that we rejoice, verse 21 and following, in the Lord. Look, look, look at this carefully again. It says, be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things in verse 21. We rejoice in the Lord our God. Verse 26, eat and be satisfied with properly Godward hearts. Look what it says there. Eat good food and be satisfied with it, praising the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. When he acts like he does here, Follow this important train of thought here. When he acts like he does here, when he sends his great army among us, who do the locusts belong to? The Lord. Who sent them? The Lord. And when he hears our cries and sees our turned hearts and removes them, who heard and who destroyed the locusts? The Lord. And then when he sends the rain, who sent the rain? The Lord. And then when he causes the fields and the trees to flourish again, who did that? The Lord. When he causes the, the vats to be full and the threshing floor to overflow and our tables to be heavy laden with abundant food, who gave that? The Lord. He has dealt wondrously with us. And then at that point, we are completely convinced, 26 and 27, that the Lord is in our midst. He's the one who has done all this. That the Lord himself alone is God. And that he's sovereign over all this stuff for us. None of this came from our own hands. None of this came from the fabulous American economy. None of this came from the ingenuity of our fathers. All of it, every single bit of it, came from the hand of the Lord who has dealt wondrously with us. That's what it accomplished Things put back together rightly as they should be. He will do this. <clears throat> Sorry, I thought I turned that off. Follow what I'm saying here, please. I am not saying things are going along, something happens. God steps in, we cry out to him, and he puts it right back so that things keep going along. I am saying things are going along wrongly. And he steps in in a way that awakens us. And when we, when you are properly awakened... Then God says, that's what I'm after. And he will then restore. This is his entire goal. It is his nature. He is a jealous God. 
a jealous lover of his people and a jealous lover of his glory. He will not share us with another and he will not share his glory with another. He is a jealous God, which is why that's where verse 18 begins. The Lord's jealousy aroused. There is a a false, an improper, a sinful jealousy in the world for sure, but there is a proper jealousy between two people who belong to each other and should not be separated. And the Lord looks upon his people and the Lord looks upon his glory and is jealous for us and jealous for his honor because he does not want to and should not be supplanted in our hearts. And his glory should not be robbed and given to something else. And so he He steps in and opposes any rival and opposes any thought, anything that may step between us and him and says, I will intervene and I will act in such a way as to drive out that wedge, to, to, to pluck it out so that you and I will be fastened tight together. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing when he sends the locusts. It is a right and appropriate jealousy that moves him. It is a sweet love for us that moves him to not settle, to not allow, but in fact to intervene. To be sure that we are drawn up close and tight to him. When he sends any locusts upon us, and those locusts come and they, they, they eat our lunch, What he's always aiming at, he's aiming at your life, not to kill it, but to give it. Because what we need is is this union with him. What you need is this union with him. And stuff always creeps in. It always kind of seeps in and kind of forces us away from him, lures us away from him, entices us to trust in our own means, in the things that we provide for ourselves. And he says kindly, graciously, with a jealous, loving heart, no, no. I want to oppose that in love. He opposes that in our lives. And then does whatever it takes to remove the the interloper. To draw out the wedge so that we can be cinched up tight with him again. Like we're made to. Like our life, where our life is found. This is the sweetest of all enticements. To see what God's doing in in all of life is the sweetest of all enticements to to, to repentance and to turning back to him, to, to see his kindness in all of the events of life. Whatever you're facing right now, I don't know what it is. It's, it's, It's something like the rest of us, but it's probably a little bit different. And whatever it is that you're facing right now, to look at that and say, I know what God's aiming at. I've thought carefully, and I know something of his goal here. Something of his goal is to cinch me up tight to him, to awaken in me dependent prayer and repentance, a turning back, and that's for my good. 
If you, if you can see all of the trouble in your life through that lens, then the trouble is troubling, but actually relieving too. If you can realize that what happened at the cross is that God poured out all his destructive wrath that rested on me, he plucked it off of me and poured it out on Christ so that I could stand now forgiven in grace, knowing that none of this is aiming at my destruction. None of it is. You can look at your trouble through that lens and say, I understand something about the cross, and therefore I understand something about God's moving in my life, and I know then something about his goal, and then I see at the end of that certain promise, he will. That's what he's after. He wants me, cinched up close tight to him, to walk through life with him. It casts every bit of trouble in your life in a different light. And you see his kindness. Sometimes it is kindness that comes with discipline, but it is kindness nonetheless. Every parent understands this. If you discipline your child, you don't hate your child. You're not trying to destroy your child. If you're a parent with a child, yes, sometimes parents with children do things they shouldn't do, for sure. Sometimes parents lose their temper, for sure. But don't most parents want what's good for their kids? Don't they? Don't you? And don't you realize that sometimes, sometimes I have to bring some discipline when I see them wandering off in some way that's not good. But I bring that with the goal of them coming back. And when they come back, when they cry out to me, when they say, I'm sorry, Mom, I'm sorry, Dad, don't you grab them and pull them close and say, good, right, that's what we're after. Let's go. Let's go together through life. I don't want to stay angry with you. I don't want to stay at odds with you. I want to, I want to, I want to be tight with you. That's God's heart for you as people, as children. Certain. And this is a far better enticement to the, the repentance and the dependent prayer that we talked about last week. This is an enticement that's built on a promise. Grace will come from this God. It's what he's after with me. He's aiming at your life to give it, not take it. So we read this, this first part of, of Joel 2 and we say, there is a restoration that comes. It did. It does. Because that's who he is with his people. He's committed to restoring you and him back to the way things should be. That's good for you. But there's more here that is surprising and unusual, perhaps, but sweet. So 
Let me read the next section then, beginning in verse 28 through the end of the chapter. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So here's the second observation. God's great day of restoration and judgment begins with the outpouring of the Spirit. God's great day of restoration and judgment begins with the outpouring of the Spirit. There's a break at verse 28 because there's a shift in time frame, but as is so often the case in the prophets, the the time is not clearly defined and is not exact. It all sort of runs together. It's often said that the prophets talk about time as if they're looking at a, at a mountain range and talking about the peaks they can see. And from the front, if you look at a mountain range, the peaks look like they're all close to each other. But if you turn sideways, look at them overhead, there's distance between. Well, the prophets stand in front of time and look ahead and see peaks, but never give us how far between. So verse 28 is just some time after this minor day of the Lord that we read about in its restoration, this minor day in which the attention-grabbing work of the Lord awakened repentance People called out to him, and then he poured out rain, and then everything blossomed and grew and was fruitful again with the people rejoicing in the Lord and restored back to him. After that, sometime down the road, something more is going to happen. Something more that all we just saw is pointing towards. A new greater, better restoration like this, a time when God acts so that we differently and better know him in our midst and differently and better rejoice in him and differently and better are never put to shame but always live in honor. A time that's coming, another day, when I will pour out not rain, but I will pour out my spirit. He says that twice in verse 28 and 29, which we need to think about first in the Old Testament context before the New Testament. We often approach that through the New Testament usage of it, but we need to think about it first in the Old Testament. And if we were to look through the Old Testament, we would find the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit present, not as much, not as pronounced, 
but he is present, he is at work. But we would notice that in particular his ministry and his presence is, is more experienced in contexts involving leaders, more so, and in contexts involving some sort of empowerment for a particular task or in some particular moment. So he's less visible, less widely dispersed, and less, you might say, abiding. We've talked about this recently, but think perhaps of the book of 1 Samuel, where Saul is anointed king. When that happens, the Spirit comes to rest upon Saul, and he begins to prophesy. And he joined a group of other prophets and spoke about the greatness of God in, in some way that people looking on said, that's different. That's some sort of unique empowerment, some sort of different drive, some sort of different illumining at work in him there as he, as he prophesies. And then that all got passed on to David when David was anointed king. Think also of Moses in the desert. This is in the book of Numbers. Moses by himself burdened with the leadership of the whole, the people of God. And so God decides to add 70 more elders to Moses' kind of leadership team. And so he puts then his spirit on these leaders and they begin to prophesy also. Again, speaking somehow of God's power in a way that people recognize it as different. They're taken over by this power, they prophesy, and then that stops too. It's just temporary. Moses then, maybe you know the statement, responding to some well-meaning criticism says, I'm not, I'm not bothered by that, I'm actually thankful for it. He doesn't want that presence and power of God kept only for himself. He, he wishes that it was not just on these other 70, but he wishes that it was on all of God's people and that all of God's people were able to prophesy about the greatness of God like this. And now here, kind of with some of that background, God is telling us, that's exactly what I'm going to do. At some point in the future, in some period of future time, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh, it says. Not just leaders and elites, all the people of God. Not just men, your sons and your daughters, male and female servants. And servants, too, the, the lowest of classes in society, and all ages, young men and old men both will dream and, and see visions. This is about everywhere you could slice a society. It would have had a racial component too if they were a multiracial society. They weren't. So he, gender and class and age, it's all equalized. Every one of them equally filled with the Spirit. Now, notice it doesn't eliminate these differences. There, there are still male and female. There's plenty of room here for there to be differences between all these people. But this much is in common. Every person among the people of God equally filled with the Spirit of God. All. A day is going to come, he says, when, when that outpouring happens and it'll be a blessed, sweet restoration 
another outpouring and, and the effects that will be like what happened when I outpoured all this rain. I'm going to outpour my spirit, producing new life and giving power to all. The ability to communicate God's word to others and the ability to uniquely commune with God both. This is an answer to Moses' hope. This is, this is like a dream come true for Moses. And then it turns dark again. Because what's going to happen right next at that day also? Here's another mountain peak. You know, how far is it between verse 29 and verse 30? Don't know. Some period of time, but they are right next to each other. There is, there is something that is right next to this 28 and 29 the Spirit outpouring in great restoration leads right to it, introduces what comes right after it is the great and awesome day of the Lord. And verses 30 to 32 bring that back quite suddenly and, and quite soberly. You read it all straight through. I will pour out my Spirit, next sentence, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, dreadful wonders. The blood of death and the fire of God's holy presence and judgment, the smoke of Sinai. These are images then followed by what of up, upheaval. Things aren't supposed to be this way with the sun turning dark and the moon as, as blood red. That's, that's not supposed to be. This is, this is, again, everything turned upside down, upheaval and a fearsome and awesome moment. The great day of the Lord. If you're reading this, like emotionally, we should be going back and forth with this. We should be, we were at first in dread, and then we should have been given some great relief, and then we should have been deeply encouraged by the outpouring of the Spirit, and now we're right back to dread. Do you feel that? One of the awkwardnesses of preaching is that in some ways I've been thinking about something for a week and I feel it. And in some way, maybe you have been too, maybe you read the passage, you've been thinking about it, but some people walk in here cold and haven't even ever read this or thought about it all. And, that, and it kind of comes to you and I'm like, man, this guy's kind of going on about, ugh. Or he's kind of going on about what seems really nice and you don't feel it. You gotta feel, oh, brothers, you gotta feel it. Sit for a second and feel this. Two chapters of dread that come to an end like last week. Perhaps he will leave a blessing. And then we say, oh, today, thank God he leaves a blessing. It is in his nature. He turns to us. He restores us. And it wants to invite us and pull us towards him. And then there's this other great promise of still more, like the, one of the dreams of the Old Testament that we all would be like, like Moses, 
anointed and empowered and prophets, and then we're right back into smoke and fire and death. What? What? Don't quite yet skip ahead to Acts 2 in your mind. Still hold here for just a second and say, what? What am I supposed to do with that? Well, God's saying something to people reading this, perhaps lightly. Dread, relief and joy, more relief and joy. But get this straight. That day is still coming. And there is one way out of that. I already told you. Everyone, verse 32, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We already saw that. I called you to that. I've, I've enticed you. I've lured you. I've showed you the great promise. Now, call. And do not presume. This, this is, there is an immediate clear and close application to all of the world out there. But the first line of this is to the people in this room. And everyone in every other church room in the nation right now. Because look closely at this. Verse 32, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, everybody who's in Mount Zion and Jerusalem, because they're in Mount Zion and Jerusalem, escapes. Everybody just because they're God's people in name, right? So they get out of jail free, right? Because they're God's people, right? No, no, no. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in Mount Zion in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. But not everybody. but not everybody. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved and will find themselves to be among those whom the Lord calls. Ultimately, salvation is of the Lord, very last phrase, whom the Lord calls. But our job on the front side is to say, I hear this and I get it clear. I am not to presume. I call myself a believer. I call myself a person of God. I call myself. I am I have been raised in. I, I sit in a family. I sit in a in a church. I'm good. You, you just told me that, that God's gonna fix everything for me. No, I didn't. I said God's gonna restore things the way they should be. 
for those who call on the name of the Lord. That's what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost to a people who presumed. He's in Jerusalem with people at the feast, come to worship the Lord, and he said, those who call on the name of the Lord. God has provided a salvation one way, call on him. So the, the, first, the first line here, the first, the first thing that we must consider is this message for us. There's not much way around that being sober. Now, what I do need to say here is that I, I know from experience that there are some of us who perhaps by nature have a great sensitivity to this kind of speech. And so you call and call and call and call and call and repent and repent and repent and repent and are still in dread. And let me say, remember the first half of the sermon. To those who call on the Lord, what you find is the sober part of this is speaking to people who aren't calling on the Lord, but are sitting there thinking, well, my mom and dad are Christians, and I don't, I guess, disagree. I mean, not like real lot. Listen. I've grown up in the church my whole life, and I'm certainly not, this, this, is, this was me. I became a Christian in college, and I would have said all the way through my, my teenage years and my early years into college, I would have said, well, whenever you have this form where you check like what, what your gender is, what your race is, what your religion is, I, I never check the Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, atheist box, so I guess I check the Christian box. Listen. But know this too that if you and as you and when you call to the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, he says. It's true. Maybe some of us in here, or maybe some of us hearing this online or some other time in some other place, maybe some of us need to hear that for ourselves. That's the, the first line. The, the second line, though, is that this, this message obviously is for all of the nations of all of the earth. That's a big task. All of the nations of all of the earth. 
How in the world can anybody hope to communicate, let alone persuade, all the nations of all the earth to hear this? This is, this is hard medicine in the church, let alone out there. How, how can that be? How, how in the world could we hope to do that? Well, that's part of the point of the giving of the Holy Spirit. Jesus encouraged us, you remember, to wait in Jerusalem. He, he told the early church, all 120 of them, wait in Jerusalem. Wait. Wait for something. Wait for someone. Power will come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. We talked about this two weeks ago when we looked at Acts. The Spirit of God is given to us because the mountain peaks, we don't know how far, but we do know that this happened. And so we are somewhere between. Like we've walked into the room and heard a grandfather clock tolling. I don't know if that was number four or number seven, but I know there's only 12. It's tolling. We are in the period. The last day is coming. And while we live here in this period, the Spirit poured out on us does two marvelous things for us here now, Christians. He enables each of us, every single one of us, to deeply commune with God. He restores us to life. He builds in us this connection That's a great blessing for us. And then secondly, he enables every one of us to communicate the truth about God. All the blessing of the Holy Spirit is for us and for others through us also. It would be an impossible task if we, if we were to look at this and say, I don't know how we could have any hope of carrying this message to an outside world that disagrees. And God says, I will put my spirit on you. I will draw you up close to me and cause you to fellowship with me and give you a life with me that is what you want, that is holy and pure, righteous, that is attractive and good. And then I will give power to your words, power to your witness. We've received this spirit, and that's why. If we divorce the giving of the spirit from the mission of the church, we're missing half the point. It's for us for the restoring of us, and it is because this message about the day that is in fact coming must be proclaimed out there. That also is why he poured out the Spirit on us to accomplish his work through us of the saving of those whom he has called Do you believe this? Then again, 
Respond to him in dependent prayer and true repentance. That's how we be filled with the Spirit to be his witnesses in the world. This book of Joel is an interesting short little ride and next week is no less interesting. It takes us all over the place if we stay even in the Old Testament. When you start connecting into the New Testament, you begin to, to realize there is, there is a great gift here and a great responsibility and a great privilege. We are a people who live in Moses' dream. And we've got a daunting assignment and a powerful God. Be filled with the Spirit, turning to Him in dependence and repentance. And you will find Him filling you and empowering you and equipping you to do the work to which He has called us. A work that is vital for the love of God and for the love of people. A warning about the coming day. Let me pray towards that end for us now. Father, we ask for your help, for your spirit to fill us now. He is help to us. Perhaps there are some in the room here or some in other rooms and other churches who call themselves after your name but don't know you. Would you move in such ones Will you save them? Will you awaken them and call them to repentance? But for most of us here, Lord, we know you and I pray that you would so give us hope. We would attend to whatever message it is you have for each of our particular lives and draw back up close to you and then lift up our eyes and see the mission that's in front of us and embrace it. Hopeful. Because actually it's your mission. So you've given us your spirit. Move us towards the world, please, Lord, with this message. There's a lot going on there, Lord. You know what each one of us needs. Please supply it. You know where each person is. Please meet us wherever we are. Build your church and honor your name, please. We trust this to you and say thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address 
is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.